0: I'm author, journalist, and historian Garrett Graff, and you're listening to The True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell.
1: Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to The True Philadelphia Podcast. I'm your host, Matt O'Donnell. We are getting a little apocalyptic with this episode. Our guest is Garrett Graff, who wrote the wonderfully researched book, Raven Rock. The actual Raven Rock is a mysterious mountain in Pennsylvania that you probably have never heard of, will never see, and will never visit. It is where the U.S. government would go if something really bad happens. Something really, really bad. A massive terrorist attack, a nuclear war, or something even worse, if you can only imagine. Yes, Raven Rock is basically the Pentagon 2.0. Given what we are enduring at the moment, falls into the category of a human crisis, I wanted to know what Garrett thought about our COVID-19 preparedness, our response, and what shockwaves this might send to our political standing in the world and at home. Garrett Graff, right now in the True Philadelphia podcast, where I begin by asking, were you prepared? <music> Garrett, uh, once again, thanks so much. It's great to speak to you. You wrote a book about how the United States prepared for an apocalypse, and now we're in this pandemic, and it has these tinges of being in an apocalypse. Did writing the book prepare you for what we're going through right now?
0: Uh, Yes and no. Um, You know, I think uh, much of the planning that the U.S. government has done over the years has been focused on a a nuclear attack um, or another WMD scenario. Um, and in in some ways this is uh, similar to the worst case of those scenarios in that you are seeing a 50 state uh, disaster unfolding simultaneously right now. Um, But obviously there is a lot less uh, actual physical destruction than you would have seen in many of those scenarios. Um, What I do think stands out uh, when you look at this current moment and the way that we think about doomsday scenarios is that what we are currently experiencing right now is a great example of how the human mind fails to understand low probability, high consequence events. Um, And in, in our mind, when we think about things like nuclear war, pandemics, catastrophic earthquakes. Um, we, we hear low probability and our mind thinks no probability, but that's really not what low probability events are like. Um, what, they, what they are is that yes, in any given day, on, in any month or year, you are unlikely to be in the midst of a pandemic or a nuclear war, uh or be uh, you know facing a catastrophic earthquake or hurricane um but when you look out at the the timelines that uh uh, of a human lifetime of of decades you know 30 50 years um you are almost certainly going to experience those types of events um you know uh, this pandemic which all of us were unprepared for uh, effectively in the middle of March, um, you know, is something that has occurred at scale in the United States 100 years ago. Um, and we have seen smaller scale events you know, pretty regularly like this, um, you know, every decade or other decade or so.
1: The uncertainty, I think, is probably the worst part beyond the obvious human suffering and, and financial suffering that everyone's going through. Great book, Raven Rock. I read it. It's uh, it's a story. First, the title is, is a bit ominous. The actual title is Raven Rock, the Story of the U.S. Government's Secret Plan to Save Itself While the Rest of Us Die. <laughs> Not exactly the most hopeful thing, but I think it is very appropriate because it's, it talks about how the government's constantly trying to prepare for the worst case scenario, the black swan, if you will, and in many regards fails in the whole process and realizes it's just hard to, to plan for these kind of things. And Raven Rock, of course, as you know, is this underground, enormous mountain complex in Pennsylvania. It's about 140 miles west of Philadelphia. It's in Adams County. A lot of Pennsylvanians probably don't even know that it exists. What is happening in Raven Rock right now, Garrett?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So um, you know, Raven Rock, um, what is known in, in the military as Site R, uh, is the backup Pentagon. Um, and it was built in the 1950s um, as the government was beginning to wrap its arms around uh what they call continuity of government planning. Uh, that's the the umbrella phrase for all of these plans, continuity of government. And um it it is uh, a facility uh, of which really the u s. only has three across the country, Cheyenne Mountain in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, um, Mount Weather in Berryville, Virginia, which is the president's uh, bunker for the executive branch and then Raven Rock, which is the military's bunker. And when I say bunker, um, these three facilities are of a scale larger than most people have any idea. Um, they It is less a, a, a bunker buried in the ground and more a uh, hollowed out mountain with a city built inside of it. Um, The the Raven Rock, Mount Weather, Cheyenne Mountain uh, literally hollowed out of the mountain and then there are freestanding buildings inside. You can get out from one building and walk to the next building. Uh, They have Uh, underground reservoirs. They have their own electrical generating systems. Um, They have cafeterias, all manner of uh, command systems, uh, advanced communications systems to ensure that they're able to communicate around the world um, as needed during an emergency. Um, And what is interesting is that this is a facility that has gone through many different iterations over the last 75 years um, and was largely shut down um, before 9-11 in the wake of the Cold War and then very quickly uh, restarted and turned back into 24-7 operations after 9-11 which still continue today um part of though what makes a pandemic so challenging is that even these continuity facilities uh are not necessarily any safer than anywhere else on the planet right now um you know they have the same exposure to the coronavirus threat that other um uh, that that anyone would have in any other gathering of humans and so what you have begun to see is actually the military try to isolate command elements, basically uh, preemptively quarantine them so that these facilities could be run if needed uh, with people that they have reason to believe are free of any sign of the coronavirus.
1: Hmm,
0: interesting.
1: Salt ball question for you, Garrett. Why is it so hard to prepare for the end of times for the U.S. government?
0: So it's it's almost of a joke of an answer, Um, but it it is the one thing that all of these plans have continually tripped over for seventy five years, which is any plans to involve what the world looks like on doomsday or thereafter uh, involve humans and the interaction between uh, what humans want to do in the moment and what their roles and responsibilities are has always been the biggest challenge of these plans. Um, you know, as just one very simple example of it in, this, in this world, um, all of these government continuity uh, bunkers, um, evacuation plans, relocation plans, don't involve families. And so one of the challenges that uh, planners have always faced um, and and, uh, that the people who have uh, access to these facilities have to wrestle with is what would happen in that moment when they are being asked to evacuate or relocate uh, and they are told they have to leave their family behind. Um, Would they do it? Uh, Would they do it quickly? Uh, And how would people be torn uh, in that moment between their duties of of their job and their duties to their families?
1: I know that you saw the blast doors to Raven Rock, and this is what sparked you writing the book in the first place. Have you, I assume you've never actually witnessed with your own eyes the live setting beneath that mountain. And I imagine it would be very, Blade Runner esque, almost to to see this. Uh,
0: yeah, uh, so I, I've not been in Raven Rock. It is a facility that is closed to the public. Um, uh, it, it exists in this weird middle ground with the U.S. Um, between being a classified facility and being something they talk about semi openly from time to time. Um, one of the records. Um, in, in in all seriousness that I found uh, that is public uh, in the course of the this book research was an award that the engineering team uh, at Raven Rock uh, received for their forestry work atop Raven Rock Mountains. One of the only times that we've actually seen the government talk about the facility uh, openly in recent years. Um, I have been inside uh, Cheyenne Mountain, uh, the the NORAD facility in uh, in Colorado Springs, which is more open uh, as an active military base and is uh, probably best known for its starring role in the 1983 movie War Games with Matthew Broderick. Um, And uh, what what is sort of weird about all of these facilities is they are a mix of uh, Blade Runner, Twenty Four, uh, and Cold War government utilitarian uh, uh, chic, um, and so uh, you know it, 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 these are in many ways you know both highly classified, highly secure locations and also normal government office buildings that people go into to work in on a daily basis um the uh the raven rock cafeteria in fact inside the mountain uh is run by a pennsylvania native american tribe as part of a minority contractor program that the government runs um inside uh, the NORAD uh, facility in in Colorado. Actually, when you get all the way inside the mountain, uh, there is a Subway fast food franchise as part of the food options inside the mountain. Um, so uh, you know there there is at least one Subway sandwich artist uh, who has a top secret clearance who would uh, actually survive. The nuclear apocalypse and be able to make five dollar footlongs uh, into Armageddon.
1: They're very delicious, and you know you paint a great picture. It sounds like it's it's very futuristic, but at the same time, you know, just government boring. You know, many government buildings are just boring. Uh, given what we've seen over the last three months with the pandemic, on your personal fear list, would you still place nuclear war, whether intentional or accidental, as what should be our greatest fear?
0: The warnings that we actually saw about the pandemics coming from the US government and scientists are highly detailed and highly specific and foresaw all of the challenges that we are experiencing right now. Um, you know I found government reports uh, from 2012 uh, laying out the need for social distancing protocols um, you know government reports talking at length in great specifics about, the shortcomings of our ventilator supply and stockpile across the country in response to a uh, pandemic of exactly this sort. Um, so that led me to ask, you know, well, what else are experts worry, worrying about? Um, and I came up with and, and wrote for political magazine this this list of these scenarios and challenges. Um, and there are two that I would single out. Here um, for our conversation that I actually think are particularly interesting uh, and, and challenging. Um, the the first is uh, you know broad scale technological disruptions, um, and you hear this uh, shorthanded a lot as a cyber attack. Um, but what uh, what the actual challenge of a cyber attack would be? is if there is a a basically internet-based attack that leads to physical destruction of critical infrastructure. Um, And so that could be water systems, uh, healthcare systems, um, and is most troublingly actually something that could target the power, uh, the electrical infrastructure um, that The U.S. government has proven in uh, in previous real-world tests, uh, notably one in 2007, known as the Aurora Generating Test, that you can utilize cyber means to cause a electrical generator to blow itself up, Uh, and that the destruction of power infrastructure uh, at scale would in many ways mirror the problems that we are having with ventilators in the current pandemic. That uh, this is big, complicated, expensive infrastructure where there is almost no uh, slack supply on the shelf uh, and that replacement would take uh, the better part of a year. And so, uh, you know, yes one two three ten generators we might be able to lose without much problem if you start talking about dozens scores or hundreds of generators you're talking about places in the united states without power for months or a year or 18 months um and then the second actually um is a, a catastrophic earthquake um, and um, when we hear this um, you know, in the United States, we mostly think of something uh, like the big one in California, the San Andreas fault hitting Los Angeles or San Francisco. That's not actually the scenario that most worries emergency planners in, in the United States. Um, there are two faults in the United States fault zones that are actually much more troubling to emergency planners. One is off the Pacific Northwest Coast, what's known as the Cascadian subduction zone, uh, that uh, if and when it releases, uh, and there is a not insignificant chance that it could release in the next 50 years. Um, So again, going back to the challenges of that low probability, high consequence event. that uh, would unleash a, uh, an earthquake potentially of 9.0 uh, on the Richter scale, uh, just absolutely massively devastating earthquake uh, that would hit the Pacific Northwest with a tsunami uh, with just 15 minutes warning. It would kill tens of thousands of people in the opening minutes of that earthquake, uh, displace hundreds of thousands of people permanently, and lead to millions without power, water and food over some period of time. The second uh, major earthquake that actually most worries emergency planners in the US is is what's known as the New Madrid Fault Zone, which goes sort of roughly up the Mississippi River, um, is named for a town in Missouri that was the epicenter of a series of quakes in 1812 and 1813. That were the largest quakes ever to hit the lower 48 states? Um, and that that uh a, a quake in that area, um, actually, this was the the national level exercise that FEMA did, uh, um, or, or regional exercise that it did actually in 2019. Uh, shaken fury. This was sort of a big planning exercise that FEMA ran in the New Madrid fault zone. Um, And it would just have devastating consequences in terms of our nation's agriculture, uh, our food production, our protein production, massive disruptions to transportation infrastructure. When you think about the goods shipped up and down the Mississippi River, the tractor trailers and cargo that crisscross the country east to west, um, hugely, hugely challenging event there. Um, and when I talked to officials at DHS, they said that you know what has made COVID such a challenge to respond to is the fact that it is a 50-state disaster unfolding simultaneously. The only disaster in their books that would uh, that would pull in the COVID pandemic has uh, brought in would be the challenge of a new Madrid fault zone earthquake.
1: Garrett's most recent book is an oral history of another horrible attack our nation has endured, one that the U.S. government thought it could prepare for, one that as it turns out, it was not prepared for, sense a pattern. The book is called The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. This pandemic and the economic shutdowns across the world now have Garrett working on a similar project of gathering oral history called COVID Spring. I asked him, what is the same and what is different about living through 9-11 and living through COVID-19? And you spoke to people who experienced that day and, and what they thought and you gathered you know, their dialogue and you're doing the same thing right now with this pandemic. And so I was just wondering, Garrett, what are the similarities or differences that you're finding between how people are impacted now and how they were you know, tw- almost 20 years ago with
0: 9-11? Yeah, um, it, it's a fascinating question. Um, and, and as you mentioned, I've been doing uh, this contemporary or oral history project for Wired Magazine, trying to capture some of the voices of this COVID epidemic as it unfolds. Um, and, and as opposed to doing something like the 9-11 book that I wrote, um, that came out last year, um, telling the story of that day in the voices of the Americans who lived it. Uh, capturing that history right now um, is the equivalent of you know racing up to firefighters as they were pulling up to the World Trade Center and up and talk about their feelings um, because You know, none of us know how this story ends. So you are talking to people at moments of great crisis right now um, without really understanding their own story arc. Um, You know, what does this this look like um, in their own lives over the months ahead, over the years ahead? What does it look like in our nation's life now, months down the road, years from now? Um, you know, it seems clear that for all sorts of reasons, big and small, the COVID epidemic and the COVID pandemic will uh, will change our daily lives uh, in America and around the world, um, from school to work to travel uh, to vacation. Um, and we don't yet know what that really looks like. Um, it, and uh, you know we, we are living through a, an economic calamity, the likes of which it is possible that the U.S. has never actually seen before. And we don't really know what that looks like uh, over this, the period ahead.
1: I know historians look backward and sometimes can use that data and that information to try and look forward. And you kind of did speculate a little bit here. Talk about what you think this pandemic may mean for our country in terms of its influence worldwide and also maybe its internal politics.
0: Yeah. um, So there are a couple of things that stand out for me. Um, uh, In the short term, uh, we're going to have an enormously uh, uh, economic crisis. Um, And I think that uh, we have yet to see our policymakers uh grasp just how bad this actually is and how bad it is likely going to be um you know that we are on a national level sort of still talking about aid in the billions of dollars um where i think when you look out over the next two to three years we are probably looking at you know 10 trillion dollars or more of need in terms of economic relief across the country. Um, it, you know, we're, the, the protection program, $649 billion program, that's really just an eight week stopgap, which means that starting next week, the companies who got those original loans are going to be running out of that money. Um, it, you know, are, are we going to see the U.S. government put another 650 billion dollars into that program just to get us through, say, the end of July, and hope that the economy has stabilized by then? Um, you look at colleges and universities, just one sector of what is a terribly disrupted and complex ecosystem of industries and sectors. Um, it seems highly likely that just universities and colleges across the country are going to need somewhere in the order of $400 billion in aid to get through this next calendar year. Um, you know, enormous challenges, the likes of which we haven't seen in generations. In the medium term, uh, the I think the challenge that we're going to see is the, um, is an enormously disruptive election year um, that both uh, in terms of public safety, there are gonna be a lot of questions about how and who can vote safely uh, coming into what is a critical presidential and and congressional election this year. Um, We're going to see big disruptions around the processes of voting as states try to switch to Vote by mail, which is turning out to be a, a deeply partisan and, and complicated issue um, at the national level and at the state level, um, we're going to see. Uh, you know, thanks to those questions uh, about the disruption to the voting process, um, it's likely, if not probable, that we may not know the winner of the election in a week or two. It may it will take extra time to count the votes, determine what is a legitimate vote. Um, that's going to inject a level of uncertainty uh, and doubt into a system that uh, we uh, have increasingly seen is not well suited to handling uncertainty and doubt. Um, and all of that is leaving aside, whatever the questions are, we're going to see in terms of foreign interference, uh, you know, foreign attacks by Russia Um, We're seeing China move into overseas influence operations uh, for the first time amid this COVID pandemic, Um, a direct outcome of China feeling like it needs to defend its reputation on the world stage. Um, You could very easily see a scenario um, where, you know, you have Russia interfering from one side on behalf of Donald Trump, you have China interfering to help the Democrats uh, and defeat Donald Trump—you um, know—very complex uh, and very bad situation possible there. So, uh, long term, then I think the challenge that the U.S. faces is just: what if we don't meet this moment? Um, you know, what if those short-term challenges and those medium-term challenges—the challenges that we are seeing in terms of our nation's response, the partisan nature of our response—are a failure to provide adequate testing, the failure of the CDC to lead in the way that we traditionally look to the CDC to lead the global response to moments like this. Uh, what happens if all of that combines to, uh, to change the US standing in the world? That you know, the US may wake up a year or two from now and feel that we have finally defeated uh, the novel coronavirus and discover that the world just doesn't need us in the way that it once did. Um, that you're seeing travel restrictions mean that uh, international students aren't interested in coming here anymore. That you're seeing uh, you know, international bodies not look to the US for leadership in the way that it traditionally has in the past. Um, You know, you're seeing a resurgent China, you're seeing the acceleration of, you know, a breakdown of a united Europe amid all of this. Um, And, you know, the U.S. currently accrues enormous economic uh, security and financial benefit from being the world's main dominant superpower. Um, and there's no guarantee that that's going to be around two years from now when this coronavirus uh, passes, if we fumble the, uh, our role in it right now, um, which I think, you know, sadly, every sign is pointing to us fumbling our response to it on a daily basis right now.
1: If you backtracked four presidential election cycles, you would have found Garrett Graff working on a campaign for a senator from his home state of Vermont. You might remember his name, Howard Dean. I couldn't help but ask Garrett for some sense of what to expect with the fast approaching 2020 presidential election. Should we prepare for the craziest 2020 presidential campaign in American history?
0: I, I think we were already heading in that direction um, before the massive disruption of the coronavirus—you um, know—the the level of uh, crazy, unpredictable threats and behavior coming into this election was already going to be unprecedented. Um, in part, um, and I think that this is important to say, uh, because Donald Trump, coming out of the 2016 campaign, has. Seen sort of what he can get away with, who knows what type of mischief we might actually see coming out of this election now that people have a better understanding of what actually did transpire in two thousand and sixteen
1: Does the pandemic help or hurt joe biden
0: um, you know I think it is way too soon to know, and um you know you can make clear arguments on on all sides of that question. Um, You know, on the one hand, um, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, uh, and his response has not um, engendered a lot of confidence in his ability to lead the government. Um, at, At the same time, you know, these travel restrictions mean that Joe Biden is sort of running a presidential campaign from his basement, which I think is not a a position that any candidate would actually want to be in.
1: What are the chances of the names Trump and Biden not being on the ballot when people go to the ballot box in November?
0: Uh, It it, it is a good question. The chances are uh, not zero. Um, But uh, I think I would go back to what I was talking about earlier, that that strikes me as a low probability, high consequence event uh, of the highest of consequences.
1: Has social media been a useful tool or a hindrance or even something that you you would wish away when it comes to dealing with things like this? I almost wonder what it would have been like on 9-11 to have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I've I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I think the challenge of the internet is that we have moved an incredible amount of our daily life, our our, uh, corporate structure, our governmental structure, our national conversation onto platforms that were never built with safety and security uh, and trust in mind. And that what that has meant is that as we have digitized our lives, uh, we have continually uh, underestimated the ability of those platforms to be used and manipulated by bad actors. Um, And those bad actors, uh, you know, can be a nation state intelligence service. They can be a criminal terrorist or hacktivist. Uh, or they could just be a particularly savvy political operative. Um, And that's one of the challenges that I think we're going to see coming into this election where um, looking back at 2016, uh, the challenge that we faced uh, in some ways was very straightforward, which was it was uh, foreign disinformation and manipulation. Um, which even then we had trouble spotting in real time uh, and reacting to in real time. Uh, Coming into this election, I think we're going to see domestic disinformation and manipulation, uh, which is much more complicated to deal with because it's actually protected by First Amendment uh, rights. That the, the advantage is that Russian Twitter bots don't actually have First Amendment protections Uh, that the US government has to be worried about. Um, Whereas that is not true if you are a dark art political operative, uh, you know, operating out of Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, Washington, DC, or wherever.
1: Garrett, if you had to send us a taste of Vermont and you didn't have to necessarily find something that you could put in a box, what would you send us?
0: Uh, It's a great question, and and of course, the obvious answer is Vermont maple syrup, the only acceptable type of maple syrup.
1: It's sort of like us with the cheesesteak. Like, it's the obvious answer, but it's the best one,
0: too, right? Absolutely. Uh, And, and you you know, you mentioned uh, Howard Dean's presidential campaign. Um, You know, I, I think for a lot of people... John Kerry miseating a Philadelphia cheesesteak is still burned into their minds as a memory of the 2004 campaign.
1: Didn't he ask for Swiss?
0: He did. <laughs> they don't have Swiss. Not one of the approved cheeses. No.
1: <laughs> Got to go with the whiz. At, you know, that's the safe bet. One more thing. Why do, why do you have so many people that run for president from Vermont?
0: Uh, we, we are a state that historically has always punched above its weight um, politically. Um, you know, I think one of the advantages of a small state uh, is that we are able to put forward very thoughtful voices on issues of national attention. Um, and uh, we have uh, not been able to translate that into very many electoral victories. Um, In fact, the only two presidents to actually ever become president out of Vermont, Chester Arthur uh, and Calvin Coolidge, both ascended to the presidency as vice presidents after the death of their president.
1: Yeah, Pennsylvania has come up pretty small. Only one president, James Buchanan. Is that correct? Uh,
0: I, I couldn't tell you the Pennsylvania numbers off the top of my head. But of course, one of the big questions is if Joe Biden the boy from Scranton becomes uh, president this fall. Is Pennsylvania going to claim him? Yeah,
1: they probably would because you know how Washington works. It, it helps to have a friend in Washington, right? <laughs>
0: Absolutely.
1: Garrett Graff, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I love your book. I'm going to read your uh, book on the pandemic once it comes out. I, I love reading your articles online. I encourage anyone who you know, is interested in you know, trying to make sense of this world, to read your materials. It's great stuff.
0: Thanks so much. Pleasure talking with you.
1: Yeah, thank you, Garrett. And thank you for joining us on the True Philadelphia podcast. Our thanks to Garrett Graff. You can find links to his work on his website, garrettgraf.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at VermontGMG. There goes that Vermont thing again. Thank you so much for giving us your time and listening to or watching the True Philadelphia podcast. Please subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Google podcasts and check out our many earlier episodes. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Stay true. We're out.